Section thirty eight of the Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume four. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume four by James Boswell, Section thirty eight. On Wednesday, June the twenty third, I visited him in the morning after having been present at the shocking sight of fifteen men executed before newgate footnote there is something dreadful in the thought of the old man quietly going on with his daily life within a few hundred yards of this shocking scene of slaughter this legal massacre to use his own words england had a kind of reign of terror of its own little thought of at the time or remembered since twenty-four men were sentenced to death at the old bailey sessions that ended on april the twenty eighth on june the sixteenth nine of these had the sentence commuted the rest were hanged this day among these men was not a single murderer twelve of them had committed burglary two a street robbery and one had personated another man's name with intent to receive his wages the gentleman's magazine recording the sentences remarks convicts under sentence of death in newgate and the jails throughout the kingdom increase so fast that were they all to be executed england would soon be marked among the nations as the bloody country in the spring assizes the returns are given for ten towns there were eighty-eight capital convictions of which twenty-one were at winchester in the summer assizes and at the old bailey sessions for july there were one hundred and forty-nine capital convictions at maidstone a man on being sentenced gave three loud cheers upon which the judge gave strict orders for his being chained to the floor of the dungeon the hangman was to grow busier yet this increase in the number of capital punishments was attributed by romilly in great part to madan's thoughts on executive justice a small tract in which by a mistaken application of the maxim that the certainty of punishment is more efficacious than its severity for the prevention of crimes he absurdly insisted on the expediency of rigidly enforcing in every instance our penal code sanguinary and barbarous as it was in seventeen eighty three the year before the book was published there were executed in london only fifty one malefactors in seventeen eighty five the year after the book was published there were executed ninety-seven and it was recently after the publication of the book that was exhibited a spectacle unseen in london for a long course of years before the execution of nearly twenty criminals at a time madame's tract was published in the winter of seventeen eighty four eighty five boswell's fondness for seeing executions is shown End of footnote. 
I said to him, I was sure that human life was not machinery, that is to say, a chain of fatality planned and directed by the supreme being, as it had in it so much wickedness and misery, so many instances of both as that by which my mind was now clouded. Were it machinery, it would be better than it is in these respects, though less noble as not being a system of moral government. He agreed with me now, as he always did, upon the great question of the liberty of the human will, which has been in all ages perplexed with so much sophistry. But, sir, as to the doctrine of necessity, no man believes it. If a man should give me arguments that I do not see, though I could not answer them, should I believe that I do not see? It will be observed that Johnson at all times made the just distinction between doctrines contrary to reason and doctrines above reason. Talking of the religious discipline proper for unhappy convicts, he said, Sir, one of our regular clergy will probably not impress their minds sufficiently. They should be attended by a Methodist preacher or a Popish priest. Footnote. A friend of mine happened to be passing by a field congregation in the environs of London when a Methodist preacher quoted this passage with triumph. Boswell. On December the 26th, 1784, John Wesley preached the condemned criminal sermon to 47 who were under sentence of death. He records, the power of the Lord was eminently present, and most of the prisoners were in tears. A few days after, twenty of them died at once, five of whom died in peace. I could not but greatly approve of the spirit and behaviour of Mr. Villette, the ordinary, and I rejoiced to hear that it was the same on all similar occasions. End of footnote. Let me, however, observe, in justice to the Reverend Mr. Villette, who has been ordinary of Newgate for no less than eighteen years, in the course of which he has attended many hundreds of wretched criminals, that his earnest and humane exhortations have been very effectual. His extraordinary diligence is highly praiseworthy and merits a distinguished reward. Footnote. I trust that the City of London, now happily in unison with the Court, will have the justice and generosity to obtain preferment for this reverend gentleman, now a worthy old servant of that magnificent corporation, Boswell. In like manner, Boswell in 1768 praised the reverend Mr. Moore, Mr. Follett's predecessor. Mr. Moore, the ordinary of Newgate, discharged his duty with much earnestness and a fervour for which I and all around me esteemed and loved him. Mr. Moore seems worthy of his office, which, when justly considered, is a very important one. End of footnote. On Thursday, June the 24th, I dined with him at Mr. Dilly's, where were the Reverend Mr. now Dr. Knox, Master of Tunbridge School, Mr. Smith, Vicar of South Hill, 
dr beatty mr pinkerton author of various literary performances and the rev dr mayo at my desire old mr sheridan was invited as i was earnest to have johnson and him brought together again by chance that a reconciliation might be effected mr sheridan happened to come early and having learned that dr johnson was to be there went away so i found with sincere regret that my friendly intentions were hopeless i recollect nothing that passed this day except johnson's quickness who when dr beatty observed as something remarkable which had happened to him that he had chanced to see both number one and number one thousand of the hackney coaches the first and the last why sir sir johnson there is an equal chance for one seeing those two numbers as any other two he was clearly right yet the seeing of the two extremes each of which is in some degree more conspicuous than the rest could not but strike one in a stronger manner than the sight of any other two numbers though i have neglected to preserve his conversation it was perhaps at this interview that dr knox formed the notion of it which he has exhibited in his winter evenings Footnote. knox in winter evenings attacks johnson's biographers for lowering his character by publishing his private conversation biography he complains is every day descending from its dignity End of on friday june the twenty fifth i dined with him at general paoli's where he says in one of his letters to mrs thrale i love to dine there was a variety of dishes much to his taste of all which he seemed to me to eat so much that i was afraid he might be hurt by it and i whispered to the general my fear and begged he might not press him Footnote. johnson wrote on april fifteenth i am still very weak though my appetite is keen and my digestion potent i now think and consult to-day what i shall eat to-morrow this disease likewise will i hope be cured beatty who dined with johnson on june the twenty-second wrote wine i think would do him good but he cannot be prevailed on to drink it he has however a voracious appetite for food i verily believe that on sunday last he ate as much to dinner as i have done all for these ten days past it was said that beatty latterly indulged somewhat too much in wine End of footnote. alas said the general see how very ill he looks he can live but a very short time would you refuse any slight gratifications to a man under sentence of death there is a humane custom in italy by which persons in that melancholy situation are indulged with having whatever they like best to eat and drink even with expensive delicacies i showed him some verses on lichfield by miss seward which i had that day received from her and had the pleasure to hear him approve of them he confirmed to me the truth of a high compliment which i have been told he had paid to that lady when she mentioned to him the colombiade 
an epic poem by Madame du Bocage. Footnote. Horace Walpole wrote in April 1750, There is come from France a Madame Bocage who has translated Milton. My Lord Chesterfield prefers the copy to the original, but that is not uncommon for him to do, who is the patron of bad authors and bad actors. She has written a play, too, which was damned, and worthy of my lord's approbation. It was this lady who bade her footman blow into the spout of the teapot. Dr. J. H. Burton writes of her in his life of Hume, the wits must praise her bad poetry if they frequented her house. Elle était d'une figure aimable, says Grimm. Elle est bonne femme, elle est riche. Vous pouvez fixer chez elle des gens d'esprit et de bonne compagnie sans les mettre dans l'embarras de lui parler avec peu de sincérité de sa Colombiade ou de ses Amazones. Madame there is not anything equal to your description of the sea round the North Pole in your ode on the death of Captain Cook. Footnote. It is the sea round the South Pole that she describes in her elegy, not ode. The description begins. While o'er the deep in many a dreadful form the giant danger howls along the storm, furling the iron sails with numbered hands, firm on the deck the great adventurer stands. Round glittering mountains hear the billows rave, and the vast ruins thunder on the wave. In the Gentleman's Magazine, 1793, were given extracts abusive of Johnson from some foolish letters that passed between Miss Seward and Haley, a poet her equal in feebleness. Boswell, in his Corrections and Additions to the First Edition, corrected an error into which he had been led by Miss Seward. She, in the Gentleman's Magazine for 1793, defended herself and attacked him. His reply is found on page 1009. He says, As my book was to be a real history and not a novel, it was necessary to suppress all erroneous particulars, however entertaining. He continues, so far from having any hostile disposition towards this lady, I have in my life of Dr. Johnson quoted a compliment paid by him to one of her poetical pieces, and I have withheld his opinion of herself, thinking that she might not like it. I am afraid it has reached her by some other means, and thus we may account for various attacks by her on her venerable townsman since his decease. What are we to think of the scraps of letters between her and Mr. Haley, impotently attempting to undermine the noble pedestal on which the public opinion has placed Dr. Johnson? End of footnote. On Sunday, June the 27th, I found him rather better. I mentioned to him a young man who was going to Jamaica with his wife and children in expectation of being provided for by two of her brothers settled in that island, one a clergyman and the other a physician. Johnson. It is a wild scheme, sir, unless he has a positive and deliberate invitation. There was a poor girl who used to come about me, 
who had a cousin in barbados that in a letter to her expressed a wish she should come out to that island and expatiated on the comforts and happiness of her situation the poor girl went out her cousin was much surprised and asked her how she could think of coming because said she you invited me not i answered the cousin the letter was then produced i see it is true said she that i did invite you but i did not think you would come they lodged her in an outhouse where she passed her time miserably and as soon as she had an opportunity she returned to england always tell this when you hear of people going abroad to relations without a notion of being well received in the case which you mention it is probable the clergyman spends all he gets and the physician does not know how much he is to get we this day dined at sir joshua reynolds's with general paoli lord elliot formerly mr elliot of port elliot dr beatty and some other company talking of lord chesterfield johnson his manner was exquisitely elegant and he had more knowledge than i expected boswell did you find sir his conversation to be of a superior style johnson sir in the conversation which i had with him i had the best right to superiority for it was upon philology and literature lord elliot who had travelled at the same time with mr stanhope lord chesterfield's natural son footnote, johnson said he had once seen mr stanhope at doddsley's shop and was so much struck with his awkward manners and appearance that he could not help asking mr doddsley who he was End of footnote justly observed that it was strange that a man who showed he had so much affection for his son as lord chesterfield did by writing so many long and anxious letters to him almost all of them when he was secretary of state which certainly was a proof of great goodness of disposition should endeavour to make his son a rascal Footnote. chesterfield was secretary of state from november seventeen forty six to february seventeen forty eight his letters to his son extend from 1739 to 1768. His lordship told us that Foote had intended to bring on the stage a father who had thus tutored his son, and to show the son an honest man to everyone else, for practising his father's maxims upon him and cheating him. Footnote. Foote had taken off Lord Chesterfield in The Cousiners. Mrs. Aircastle trains her son Toby in The Graces. She says to her husband, Nothing but grace. I wish you would read some late posthumous letters. You would then know the value of grace. Act 2, scene 2, end of footnote. Johnson. I am much pleased with this design, but I think there was no occasion to make the son honest at all no he should be a consummate rogue the contrast between honesty and knavery would be the stronger it should be contrived so that the father should be the only sufferer by the son's villainy and thus there would be poetical justice he put lord elliot in mind of dr walter hart i know said he 
Hart was your lordship's tutor, and he was also tutor to the Peterborough family. Pray, my lord, do you recollect any particulars that he told you of Lord Peterborough? He is a favourite of mine, and is not enough known. His character has been only ventilated in party pamphlets. Lord Elliot said, if Dr. Johnson would be so good as to ask him any questions, he would tell what he could recollect. Accordingly, some things were mentioned. But, said his lordship, the best account of Lord Peterborough that I have happened to meet with is in Captain Carlton's memoirs. Carlton was descended of an ancestor who had distinguished himself at the siege of Derry. Footnote. Carlton, according to the memoirs, made his first service in the navy in 1672, seventeen years before the siege of Derry. There is no mention of the siege in the book. End of footnote. He was an officer, and what was rare at that time had some knowledge of engineering. Footnote. He had obtained by his long service some knowledge of the practical part of an engineer. End of footnote. Johnson said he had never heard of the book. Lord Elliot had it at Port Elliot, but after a good deal of inquiry, procured a copy in London and sent it to Johnson, who told Sir Joshua Reynolds that he was going to bed when it came, but was so much pleased with it that he sat up till he had read it through, and found in it such an air of truth that he could not doubt of its authenticity. Footnote. Lord Mahon proves that a Captain Carlton really served. It is not impossible, he says, that the manuscript may have been entrusted to Defoe for the purpose of correction or revision. The memoirs are most strongly marked with internal proofs of authenticity. Lockhart says, It seems to be now pretty generally believed that Carlton's memoirs were among the numberless fabrications of Defoe, but in this case, if the fact indeed be so, as in that of his cavalier, he no doubt had before him the rude journal of some officer. Dr. Burton says that manuscripts in the British Museum disprove the possibility of Defoe's authorship. End of footnote. Adding with a smile, in allusion to Lord Elliot's having recently been raised to the peerage, I did not think that a young lord could have mentioned to me a book in the English history that was not known to me. Footnote. Lord Chesterfield, writing to his son on November the 29th, 1748, says of Mr. Elliot, Imitate that application of his which has made him know all thoroughly and to the bottom. He does not content himself with the surface of knowledge, but works in the mine for it, knowing that it lies deep. End of footnote. An addition to our company came after we went up to the drawing-room. Dr. Johnson seemed to rise in spirits as his audience increased. He said he wished Lord Orford's pictures, footnote, the Houghton collection was sold in 1779 by the third Earl of Orford to the Empress of Russia for £40,555. Horace Walpole wrote on August the 4th of that year, Well, adieu to Houghton. 
about its mad master i shall never trouble myself more from the moment he came into possession he has undermined every act of my father that was within his reach but having none of that great man's sense or virtues he could only lay wild hands on lands and houses and since he has stripped houghton of its glory i do not care a straw what he does with the stone or the acres End of footnote. and sir ashton lever's museum footnote. this museum at alcrington near manchester is described in the gentleman's magazine of seventeen seventy three a proposal was made in parliament to buy it for the british museum on july the eighth seventeen eighty four a bill enabling lever to dispose of it by lottery passed the house of commons End of footnote. Reader's note, resuming from Johnson, saying he wished Lord Orford's pictures might be purchased by the public, because both the money and the pictures and the curiosities would remain in the country, whereas if they were sold into another kingdom, the nation would indeed get some money, but would lose the pictures and curiosities, which it would be desirable we should have for improvement in taste and natural history the only question was as the nation was much in want of money whether it would not be better to take a large price from a foreign state he entered upon a curious discussion of the difference between intuition and sagacity one being immediate in its effect the other requiring a circuitous process one he observed was the eye of the mind the other the nose of the mind Footnote. johnson defines intuition as sight of anything immediate knowledge and sagacity as quickness of scent acuteness of discovery End of footnote. a young gentleman footnote, young mr burke is probably meant as it stood in the second edition it might have been thought that edmund burke was the gentleman the more so as Johnson often denied his want of wit. End of footnote. Present took up the argument against him and maintained that no man ever thinks of the nose of the mind, not adverting that though that figurative sense seems strange to us as very unusual, it is truly not more forced than Hamlet's in my mind's eye Horatio he persisted much too long and appeared to johnson as putting himself forward as his antagonist with too much presumption upon which he called to him in a loud tone what is it you are contending for if you be contending and afterwards imagining that the gentleman retorted upon him with a kind of smart drollery he said mr blank blank it does not become you to talk so to me besides ridicule is not your talent you have there neither intuition nor sagacity the gentleman protested that he had intended no improper freedom but had the greatest respect for dr johnson after a short pause during which we were somewhat uneasy johnson give me your hand sir you were too tedious and i was too short mr blank blank sir i am honoured by your attention in any way johnson 
come sir let's have no more of it we offended one another by our contention let us not offend the company by our compliments he now said he wished much to go to italy and that he dreaded passing the winter in england i said nothing but enjoyed a secret satisfaction in thinking that i had taken the most effectual measures to make such a scheme practicable End of section thirty eight